to be or not to be? That is the question. In the first lockdown of 2020, in those eerie, unsettling pre-vaccine days, I decided to try to take my mind off things by embarking on a personal project to create a homemade podcast, a little series which would be a deep dive into a single speech, albeit probably the most famous speech in all of English literature, Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be. Probably the most quoted, analysed, parodied, travestied, satirised, ironised, obvious, clichéd speech in all of English literature. I wanted to know why is it so ubiquitous? Why is it famous around the world? Why has this speech become the famous speech and not another? The project soon hugged me in its long arms. Actors, scholars, writers, directors, philosophers, psychoanalysts, psychologists, neuroscientists returned my call. By serendipitous accident, I had hooked into a little network, a network connected by a joyous enthusiasm for performing or discussing these 400-year-old words. Some days, I lined up seven or eight hour-long interviews in a row, and I ended up recording perhaps a hundred hours of interviews. To everyone who took part, I'm profoundly grateful. I spent the time reading as much as I could too about Hamlet, and believe me, there's a lot. One bibliography lists over 2,000 books and articles about Hamlet published between 1877 and 1935. 500 books at least about Hamlet were written between 1960 and 1975, and 700 more between 1975 and 1990. At least 400 peer-reviewed papers are written about Hamlet every year. George Bernard Shaw, a Shakespeare sceptic, said, Tons of ink and paper and years of man's time have been wasted and are still being wasted on innumerable volumes of nonsense about the meaning of Hamlet. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said it would be a good idea to burn every page written by critics about Shakespeare and by the light of the bonfire to read Shakespeare himself. Oscar Wilde suggested it was time to stop discussing whether Hamlet was mad in favour of a discussion of whether the commentators are mad. And there's a great quote from a critic called H.H. H. Furness. I am convinced, he said, that were I told that my closest friend was lying at the point of death and that his life could be saved by permitting him to divulge his theory of Hamlet, I would instantly say, let him die, let him die, let him die. But despite all of these warnings, I still found it utterly compelling, completely absorbing, deeply satisfying to fill up the empty days of lockdown trying to get my head around Hamlet's enigmatic question. And I came to one fundamental conclusion. The soliloquy has mattered and continues to matter because it has an uncanny power to persuade people that it's talking directly to them about their innermost hopes and fears. Not just on the level of the individual either, because it's not an exaggeration to say that Hamlet's speech has been used again and again to express the dilemmas, the anguish, and the fateful turning points not just of individuals, but of entire nations. In James Cameron's 1980s sci-fi film, Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger spends most of his time being chased by a liquid metal machine, the T-1000. It's a CGI-generated villain, 
and it has the power to morph itself into the shape of anyone who looks at it, transforming itself into an exact doppelganger. It's a perfect mirror, adaptive to any ecology, with the ability to record and retain the images of all the people it's encountered in its life. At the end of the film, it undergoes a violent heat death in a blast furnace, and as it dies, it spasms through all the faces it's assumed throughout the film, one face eerily warping into another face as it writhes and coils in the inferno. I came to believe that Hamlet's soliloquy is the cultural equivalent of the T-1000. It's indestructible. It's warped its way from culture to culture and found a local habitation everywhere. It has the power to show us the reflections of all the shapes it's assumed over centuries of interpretation and reinterpretation. And when someone looks at it, they see their own reflection looking back. So what I want to do in this series is outline what I learned about Hamlet's speech. Why has it become so famous? Why has this speech become our speech? What uses has it been put to? And what can we learn from it? What does it show us about literature and its fierce and unbreakable connections to life as we live it today? Episode 1. Babbling about Hamlet. As the invading German armies smashed their way through France in the spring of 1940, they encountered an obstacle they hadn't expected. In parts of the front line, they were facing French troops recruited from colonial Senegal. And these troops were fighting back with extraordinary skill and determination. The way these men from West Africa fought wasn't just a blow to German self-respect, it was a direct contradiction of Nazi race ideology, which emphasised white supremacy. The infuriated German army massacred these soldiers wherever they found them, even if they'd surrendered. As Hitler secured his grip on conquered France, the Gestapo decided to concoct a propaganda story to try to explain the massacres of the Senegalese soldiers. In Chartres, southwest of Paris, they tried to force a local French functionary to sign a declaration that he'd witnessed the Senegalese raping and murdering women and children, thereby justifying their killing. But the official they tried to pressurise, a 40-year-old sub-prefect called Jean Moulin, refused to sign. It was, he said, an infamous statement. He knew it was a lie. For seven hours, Moulin was interrogated, beaten and tortured by the Gestapo but still he refused to cooperate. So he was thrown into a cell to spend a sleepless night contemplating the stark choice ahead of him. This story is famous in France, where Moulin is a national hero. He managed to scribble a note in his cell, which now provides a guide to his thoughts. Instead of praying, as you might expect, he recited Hamlet's speech, to be or not to be. There are many interpretations you can give to the soliloquy, but according to one very plausible reading, Hamlet is considering suicide. Suicide is a way out of a practical and ethical situation he finds impossible. Hamlet speaks of action or self-extinction, becoming and doing, 
He lists the horrors and the burdens of life at its worst. He confesses to fear and paralysis in the face of the problem of ethical action in a world which resists all morality. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. And on that dark night, in a piece of alchemy which we'll see again and again, the speech warped and changed. It seemed to Moulin to map itself directly and specifically onto the situation he found himself. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare botkin? Hamlet's words crystallised his own impossible situation. To die, to sleep, no more. Mulan wrote that his version of Hamlet's dilemma was to sign or to disappear. It is impossible to flee. Mulan echoed Hamlet in his note. Death, like millions of Frenchmen since the war began, I have accepted it. Reciting the speech to himself helped brace him for what he now knew he must do. In the middle of the night, Moulin picked up a broken plane of glass on the floor of the cell and cut his own throat. But as he bled out profusely on the cell floor, the Nazi guards burst in, dragged him to a hospital and his life was saved. Moulin was lucky, for a time at least. He was released and he fled to London to become a leading figure in de Gaulle's French resistance. But in 1943, while undercover in France, he was arrested again and brutally tortured, this time by the infamous Klaus Barbie. Hot needles were driven under his fingernails, his knuckles were broken, he was whipped and beaten. He died in captivity. It's not known if he died of his injuries or if he committed suicide successfully this time. But what seems almost certain is that for one final time in his last few hours alive, Jean Moulin turned to Hamlet's speech again, as he faced his own extinction, the bald and brutal fact of his own non-being. It's stories like this which have fascinated me while researching the history of the speech, occasions when Hamlet's words have accompanied someone in their darkest moments, as they made decisions which they know they will not return from. Let me give you one more story for now, it couldn't be more different than the story of Jean Moulin and the Gestapo, except that yet again it's the story of someone in the worst moments of their life contemplating ending their life, calling on Hamlet and seeming to find some kind of connection, perhaps a sense that they aren't the only one to have had these feelings. The central character of this story is Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, the grunge rock band from Seattle which rocketed to worldwide fame in the early 90s. Cobain was a damaged, vulnerable, sensitive character, totally unprepared for fame, 
He suffered from chronic ill health and deep depression, and he became a severely dependent drug user amid much personal turmoil. Cabet was an artist immersed in outsider literature, and when he was asked to list his ten favourite books, he named Hamlet, just after Catcher in the Rye and before Scum Manifesto. He clearly saw Hamlet as an alienated outsider, just like Holden Caulfield. All the evidence suggests that Cobain turned to Hamlet's question, to live or not to live, at his darkest times. In May 1993, Seattle Emergency Services were called to his home. Finding him on the living room sofa, the crew reported that he was babbling about Hamlet. He'd injected himself with enough heroin to kill himself many times over, and he told the medics he wanted to die. In hospital, on a bed in a packed hallway, hooked up to an IV drip, he came to consciousness again, and again talked of Shakespeare. Later, Cobain's doctors told him that he had a clear choice. He could continue with his addiction, which would mean death, or he could get sober and live. His answer, he was told, would determine his very existence. Cobain replied, you mean like Hamlet? Cobain wrestled with Hamlet's question for months. Then, in March 1994, in the Excelsior Hotel in Rome, he wrote a suicide note, in which he said, Like Hamlet, I have to choose between life and death. I'm choosing death. He injected himself with 50 doses of the tranquilizer drug Rohypnol, but again, he was rushed to hospital and his life was saved. He committed suicide successfully a month later, and his second suicide note spoke of the horror he felt at living a life he didn't want to live, in a world alien to him. I'm so alone, he wrote in his diary, found after his death. As far as I can tell, no one ever asked Kurt Cobain what he saw in Hamlet, or at least no one recorded his responses. Certainly, he self-identified with Hamlet. These are two characters who are the embodiment of contradiction, of self-lacerating paralysis and dark humour, both capable of creating things of extraordinary beauty and insight, of moving and swaying others. Cobain with his music, Hamlet with his words, words, words. Cobain, too, may have detected in Hamlet his own polarised swings between a passion for life, love and connection, and on the other hand, a desire to end it all, not to live out the rock star role he was meant to be playing. He spoke of feeling both a hatred for the world and also an excess of love and empathy for everybody in it. Like Hamlet, Cobain had found himself living out a role he simply didn't want to play. Hamlet is meant to be a bloody revenger, Cobain a rock star, Part of their tragedy is that neither wanted to carry out the role allotted to them in life, like so many others. So we have two completely different characters, the stoic man of honour, Jean Moulin, the troubled, self-loathing Kurt Cobain, both at the end of their tether, both turning to Hamlet's speech to help clarify their own desperate situation, perhaps to feel less alone at the darkest moments of their lives when they feel themselves on the edge, living between life and death. And yet, 
To see Hamlet's speech as just an agonised wrestle with suicidal thoughts is just to see one of its many possible interpretations. Across the world and throughout time, people have claimed Hamlet's speech for their own. And they've assigned it completely different meanings. Just to give you a short list of some of the possible interpretations, the speech can be about doubt, life weariness, the futility of living. It can be about coping with grief, heartbreak, the death of a close one, about facing the inevitability of our own death, our own transience. Or it can be about finding some authentic way of being in the world, of achieving self-expression, self-fulfillment, coming into your own. It can be about finding yourself or about giving up in despair. It's about confronting the blurred line between life and death or self-expression or self-absorption. It's about finding yourself or connecting with others or it's a broad contemplation of the profound philosophical mystery of being and non-being. It's a meditation on whether there's an afterlife. It's a dire warning of the perils of becoming embroiled in the toils of thought, of consciousness, how thinking can stand in the way of doing. Still others have found in it a rousing, rebellious call to arms, seeking for justice for an oppressed minority or a threatened majority, a plea for self-determination on the collective scale or even a criticism of political failure. And that's not even to mention the many people who over the years have utterly hated the speech, despising Hamlet for what they see as relentlessly narcissistic dithering. There's even a concept called Hamletism, described as a kind of intellectual sickness, a futile, self-loathing, pointlessly self-questioning moral and mental illness. Hamletism has been described as a disease, a contamination, a virus which spreads, caught not just by individuals, it's been claimed, but by entire nations and cultures. There's a fundamental principle of Shakespeare's writing which can be found in quite an unlikely setting. A maverick, sometimes brilliant book by an American psychiatrist, Dr James Groves, called Hamlet on the Couch, in which he exhaustively psychoanalyses Hamlet. Dr Groves formulates what he sees as the most important three laws of Shakespeare, of which the second law is, whatever is a truth in Shakespeare will be found to have an opposite, and that opposite will also be true. Perhaps this helps us approach the most baffling, challenging and rewarding feature of the speech. Time and again, you come across an account of the soliloquy which seems true and convincing and right, and yet it utterly contradicts another interpretation which also seems true and convincing and right. Delving deeply into to be or not to be can be the equivalent of a philosophical swoon into total darkness. The British scholar Frank Commode said that to tackle Hamlet is to face the ambiguous, the unexpected, conflicting evidence and semantic audacity. We are challenged to make sense, we are mocked if we fail. The American academic Harry Levin put it more succinctly. Hamlet is a state of perplexity into which we enter. But perhaps experiencing the perplexity is the point. It's exhilarating, it's freeing, and it provokes us into making our own interpretations. Hamlet's speech survives because it has lived many lives 
and it continues to have agency, influence and a tangible presence in the world. It's been an instrument for thinking, it has changed people's minds and even, on occasion, their lives. That's what I hope to explore in this forthcoming series. <laughs>